0: and welcome everybody to my independence report my name is kevin mcdonald and we've got a heck of a show for you today and uh um it's the day after thanksgiving and um which would make it black friday i believe it's never black friday for me because i don't go i i don't go shopping whenever i can and stuff so um but it's a beautiful day today and uh we're gonna have a great discussion in this in this hour i've been looking forward to this from some time, because those of you who know uh, and have listened to some of the shows that I've done, I'm I'm really interested in the American West and the um, history of the of the Indians and the Indian Wars and all of that. And uh, we have somebody that's going to be able to talk to us about that and a whole bunch of other stuff because he's he's written eleven books and his name is Jeff Raisley. How are you do, doing today, sir?
1: uh i'm very well thanks kevin uh great to be with you
0: you know it's awesome i've been reading uh through the uh the list of your books there's some really intriguing titles you've you've done a lot of things in your young life (laughs) well
1: my not so young life um yeah um you know i decided a long time ago life you should try to approach it like an artist and make a, a beautiful work of art out of your life if you can. And I can't say mine has been completely beautiful, but um I've tried to do some worthy things in it and with the tools that I have.
0: Well, you know, you gotta just keep going. And you keep walking and you keep doing the best you can. Uh that's kind of the human condition, isn't it? That we don't always, even though we have the best of intentions, sometimes it just doesn't work out quite the way we'd hoped.
1: Not every time,
0: <laughs> but if you know, I figure, I figure it's kind of like a you know a baseball player, uh, an all star baseball player bats three hundred, and they think that that's just ducky, uh, and he said that's only getting a hit three out of ten times, so he fails a lot more than he wins. But I suppose when he gets a home run, then he gets to win, and that's that's kind of how I feel about our life. If we if we keep working at it, we're going to win enough that it's going to be fun.
1: I think that's an excellent attitude.
0: But it's so, when did you start writing? Because you've you've got, like I said, eleven books. You've got over eighty publications of of your work in different magazines and things. I mean, you've been writing a little while, haven't you?
1: Yeah. Well, um, I grew up in a kind of a literary family. My um, grandfather was the editor of our local newspaper. My Mom um, was the city editor. My stepfather uh, followed uh, and grandfather's shoes became the city editor or became the editor uh, in chief. And my wife uh, published her first or had her first book published at the age of 21. Um, And she's an English professor. And I started writing bad poetry when I was a teenager and, um, you know, progressed, I hope, uh, by the time I was in law school to writing some more worthy articles and had my first law review article published when I was in law school. And I've been writing about all sorts of different things ever since.
0: Boy, you have been a really knowledgeable family in your household. Uh, your your uh, wife is an English teacher. You're a lawyer. You, you guys must have some very interesting discussions over dinner.
1: Yeah, especially with our cat. <laughs> <laughs> who, who seems to think she's the most intelligent member of the family.
0: Of course. of course. Of course. A friend of mine says that, you know, dogs have masters, cats have staff. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> you just
1: fulfill yeah, her yeah. needs. Yes, uh, she's definitely in charge, and we're her servants.
0: <laughs> and she wouldn't have it any other way. So let's let's talk about your writing and and some of the books that you've done. Of the eleven, which would you call your favorite one?
1: Um, whichever is the last one. <laughs> um, so uh, I'm actually working on another one now. But for purposes of this discussion, of course, my favorite one is my last one, the one that uh, inspired our connection, uh, America's existential crisis, um, which is uh, a- a- about uh, relations um, between Native Americans and um, white folks or Americans, uh, non-Native Americans and uh Sort of a a historical and a familial perspective on those relations and where they've gone wrong, where they've gone right, and what we could do to much improve them for the future.
0: You know, it's interesting. uh, Way, way back when, in 1970 or so, I was uh, going to a movie with a friend of mine. um, And I don't know if you remember this title or not. Uh, but the the movie was called Billy Jack, and it was about a um, um, an Indian who was he lived on a reservation, and the, the very few lived on the reservation anymore. But he was he was dedicated to trying to help the uh, people understand the plight of the American Indian, what we did to them, um, how many treaties there were, how many treaties are still in force, and how many we broke and and was trying and was really was trying to get the word out that that was the first time that i became socially aware that uh we because at that time the history books did not talk about those things and what we did to the indigenous people of this of this continent and how badly they were served by us and and stuff so i'm really am interested to talk to you about this this book because i i agree with you i think that they're There is a crisis that is going on with with, uh, how we've treated these folks over so many years.
1: Yeah, well, and uh, I saw Billy Jack, too, when it came out and really enjoyed it. And I have to say that I sort of uh, uh, sympathized with Billy Jack, who started out being a peacemaker and ends up kicking the crap out of some white racist guys. Um, but which I think is, um, is, is the feeling that a lot of uh, Native Americans have today and have had for a long time, um, because of broken treaties. Uh, yeah, I mean, there were Indian wars, numerous Indian wars between the United States of America and different Indian tribes and nations, which the U.S. law or one almost all except one of them um which was against red cloud um back right after the civil war which ended up with the uh the what was called the fort laramie treaty of 1868 which is um one of the key uh legal uh points that my book is concerned with um because that treaty uh, recognized uh, after uh, really a, a fight to uh, to a standstill between Red Cloud and the U.S. Army that the uh, people in that area who were primarily Sioux in the Sioux Nation would have the uh, the Black Hills as their homeland and and this really at that point was not considered a reservation. Um, it, it would. It was recognized as their ha- homeland because this was a treaty between equal nations. Um, unfortunately, the treaty after gold was discovered in, um, I think it was 1874, uh, in the Black Hills. That then all these white prospectors, you know, rushed in to try to find gold, and then General Custer. Uh, came in and in in effect intentionally instigated a battle um, with the Sioux, which he stupidly (laughs) lost Uh because of, uh, you know, not, not believing his scouts and, and being, uh, you know, kind of an egomaniac and was slaughtered along with uh, 270 of his cavalrymen. But, because of that uh, defeat it really inspired the united states to then go to war with the sioux Um, general custer was turned into this national hero through a a great pr machine and then the sioux uh, uh, the u.s declared that they had broken the treaty by attacking general custer which of course was completely backwards and uh forced them out took the black hills away and said you your reservation will now be the badlands and split the Sioux up in into different reservations within the badlands which are the most inhospitable area in the entire lower 48 and um at which then eventually in uh, 1890 led to the massacre at wounded knee when uh, Sioux people started trying to leave the reservations that they were um, forced into because they were basically starving to death
0: it was a horrible horrible piece of history that a lot of us didn't know i i, I remember a book that I picked up about the life of uh, George Armstrong Custer, how he was a, a, a general at 24, and and all of that, but it it painted the the Indians as less than a, a, a great uh, a group of people, and and it painted them as as being the neg the enemy, the negative, the the bad stuff, which in fact. When Custer attacked them, they, he attacked a, uh, a village that had men, women, and children in it, and were on the on the banks of the Little Bighorn because that's where they could get enough feed for their animals and stuff. And they were just trying to live peacefully at that moment.
1: Yeah, isn't,
0: isn't that your understanding?
1: Well, yeah. Um, I mean, he he really had the intention of trying to uh, draw. Sue into a war so that it would be the pretext for um, moving them out, and uh, you know, letting the prospectors come in. And because of the 1830 Removal Act, the United States president had legal authority granted to him by Congress through this Congressional Act of 1830 to any tribe. Um, that was declared hostile to the interests of the United States could be forcibly removed west of the Mississippi. Uh, and so using the 1830 Removal Act after uh, Little Bighorn, um, that's why the, the Sioux Nation was, you know, their lands, the, the Black Hills were stolen from them by a treaty violation and they were moved into the badlands
0: didn't uh president uh, um, grant who Ulysses as grant at the time wasn't that his intention the entire time
1: well actually uh historians give grant some credit of trying to resist uh there were um pe- uh, the railroads interest and the 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 mining interests had been petitioning grant for some time uh to to remove the the Sioux from the black hills and after gold was discovered it became you know just a, a huge drumbeat and he resisted it and so it wasn't until custer um went in and without grant's approval grant did not give approval to custer to enter into the black hills and enter into the homeland of the Sioux. custer did that without any authority beyond what he gave to himself but then after that um the public pressure on grant was so great that yeah he gave
0: into it that's, a, that's and it, it changed the the sioux were a proud people and uh, when they had, when they left after the little bighorn and had to go North um, and then they ended up with wounded knee and stuff that it's a beautiful story to tell in, in a really sad way because they were a proud people at one time.
1: Yeah, it is. And why that story um, was so important to me personally as I have an ancestor, Lieutenant James DeFries Mann, who was um, commander of a company at uh, Wounded Knee. And he was front and center uh, in the massacre. And in fact, his uh, interviews uh, to two different uh, newspaper reporters and a, a long letter that he dictated for his brother Um, are some of the best historical records we have of what happened to Wounded Knee. Now, his version is somewhat slanted uh, to make the 7th Cavalry look, you know, certainly better than it looked in the eyes of the Sioux, Um, but he gives, from his point of view, a very straightforward, factual account of what happened how the, the in what he would call the battle was sparked um and because the sioux didn't you know didn't have, keep written records i mean their their uh, culture was not one which created written records um historians really for a long time only had uh the version of the seventh cavalry But even given that, there were people who recognized that this was a massacre, that it it really was a setup um, from the beginning. And uh, General Nelson Miles, who was the Supreme Commander of over the Northwest Territory uh, a year after Wounded Knee in 1891, wrote a report where he had investigated why did this happen. and and his conclusion was, it was a complete failure of the reservation system, that the reservation mm-hmm. system, you know, locked up these people who were nomadic people. Uh, it it was destroying their culture, and it put them in land that was just not sustainable. And then beyond that, um, some of the uh, Bureau of Indian uh, Agency managers and contractors were engaged in corrupt practices, money uh, and resources that were supposed to be going to the reservations were <laughs> getting siphoned off. And um, it, w- it was just, you know, the system was, was basically a prison system for these uh, defeated tribes who had had this really beautiful nomadic life mm-hmm. where they you know, roamed over the land um, that they considered their land and hunted buffalo until white people exterminated the buffalo and then imprisoned them in these reservations on land that wasn't part of their homeland.
0: As, as white people, we sure did a good job there, didn't we? Well, white people
1: are, have been very good at uh, conquering other people. Um, it does seem to be a talent that we have. But we also have the talent of creating ideals of uh, justice and fairness and putting those into constitutions and laws, uh, which when actually practiced, um i think ha, have been the the high point of uh legal civilization
0: No, i agree if we could if we could figure out that uh that we really need to to follow the constitution and not you know redefine it all the time depending upon who's in power at the time it, it would really would be nice because it's a beautiful document and it's, it's, the ideals are very high. As a matter of fact, the Constitution didn't even live up to the ideals that it was saying it wanted to live up to at the time that it was done.
1: Yeah, when it, when it
0: defines
1: black people as two thirds of a human being within the Constitution that starts out about you know the freedom and equality of uh, all people and. I mean, you know, mixing the Declaration of Independence in with the Constitution, but since they were written by the same people, why yeah. not? But yeah, I mean, it goes back to the old saying of practice what you preach, and we've uh, our culture, our our Anglo-American history I think has been very good at preaching um some wonderful ideals, the practicing mm, you know, not not as good as the preaching.
0: Not so much, not so much. So so. tell me, you, you write about the exist, existential crisis. Um, where are we today with the Native American populations? And what do you think we need to be doing about that?
1: Well, the book ends on a very hopeful note because we're actually, I think, at, a high water mark in in terms of very low historical, (laughs) very low water, uh, low tide, Um, because uh, when the Biden administration came in, one of the first acts that they passed was, um, which is part of that that great big um, trillion dollar um, American Rescue Act, part of that act is called um, the uh, American Indian Rescue Act, and it allocates um, almost 32 billion dollars to uh, uh, very all sorts of different projects to uplift Native communities and to provide educational, uh, economic, infrastructural um, development, and to help with historical preservation. Of Native tribes um, and communities, and this is the the biggest um, amount of money that's ever been allocated um, for the purpose of trying to, um, you know, I mean, I guess you could say to undo some of the injustices committed by the U.S. government against Native nations, and so and the other thing that um you know gives me real hope uh is the secretary of the department of interior for the very first time is a uh, native american deb holland uh, who's a pueblo navajo um, member of that tribe and nation uh so the department of interior is in charge of the bureau of indian affairs is, is in charge of all relations between uh, the united states and native nations and so she's going to be in charge of making sure that the money is spent the way it should be and i think you know there's uh, just because of her own motivation i think there will be uh, better uh, use of funds than historically <laughs> has happened when you know we've had good intentions and the results haven't been that great. I mean, just recently there's been this real focus um, on how the uh, Native American boarding schools, which started out as you know this kind of high-minded intention of helping Native American kids. To integrate into white society, okay. So, you know that sounds good if that's what they want to do. But a lot of these kids were forcibly taken from their parents, not because they wanted to go to those schools. They were forced to go to those schools, and then uh, the, the what the schools did is they basically stripped the kids of their their indigenous culture. And tried to turn them into good Christians, and turn them out with low sort of low skilled job um, experience, as opposed to preparing them for higher education. Um, I mean, there were there were trade schools, um, which you know uh, could be good, but that if that's the if that's the ceiling of the opportunity offered. know not so good but just you know recently there's been um you know kind of a media discovery of this Uh, pbs just had a special on it um and uh you know there is so that i think there is a real uh awakening to the plight of native american communities and a commitment within the, the public media and within the us government to try to do something about it. Now, what is the level of consciousness of most Americans? Um, you know, I don't know, but that's what I wanted to do with this book is to at least the people that read the book will understand how unjustly the United States of America has treated Native tribes and what is owed you know both legally and morally uh to indigenous people and then i you know give the the last section of the book is to offer sort of a a road forward on how um native communities can be uh developed without you know bankrupting the rest of us
0: Jeff how yeah. many how many uh um uh, uh, Reservations are there in this country? I don't. I don't even know. Or, are, are when you're talking about Indian communities, are we talking about on reservation land or just um, in, anywhere that there's? Um, and and how many reservations are there?
1: Yeah, I, I can't tell you the exact number of reservations, but it's at it's hundreds. Um,
0: really, I have no idea.
1: Yeah, I, there's a lot of small reservations. And they're, you know, they're mostly uh in the west, west of the Mississippi, but there's a fair number uh in the Midwest, in the North, uh, even in the east. Um so and and that's I'm mainly talking when I talk about development of uh, Native communities, I'm mainly talking about communities on reservations. Now about half of Native Americans live off of reservations. But uh, if you know if you if you're Native American and you've chosen to leave the reservation, then you know you've made a choice to try to integrate into the majority culture, and I you know that's fine if if that's your choice you know more power to you I mean that's freedom we're you know one of our fundamental principles. Uh, as Americans, is that sort of freedom to choose? Um, but the 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 Native communities that are on the reservations are the poorest communities in every objective um, measurement. They have the lowest life expectancy of any racial ethnic group. They have the highest rate of poverty. They have the highest rate of unemployment. Um, the uh, lowest rate of health measurements. I mean, you take any sort of objective standard of living, and Native Americans in reservation communities are at the bottom every single measurement.
0: Is is part of that because the reservation land that they're on is not is not the best piece of property in the world? Uh, I know that there are some in the Southwest that. That don't even have any water on them; that they have to bring the water in, and and stuff. So, so, um, and, and I, I, I had a question I want to ask you. Uh, you're familiar with the um, internment of the Japanese in World War II? Yeah. <laughs> in the eighties, in the eighties, they were all given the ones that were still with us were given a check for twenty thousand dollars as reparation for that. Mm-hmm. Don't you think? I, I at least I kind of tend to think that we. Owe it to these people to help them, and in some form or manner of reparations for what was done before, to at least give them a a, a good living standard and educational system that that'll work. Um, is that is that kind of your view?
1: Uh, I actually go through the debate in one chapter about reparations. Uh, reparations, it's. It's kind of a, a nice sounding, easy solution, but actually working it out would, there's a lot of problems. Like, first of all, who's a Native American? Exactly. Uh, there's there's a, a, about five and a half million people that have at least um, some, native, some significant Native American heritage, genetic heritage. There's only about two and a half million who are what we call full-blooded Native Americans. So if we decide, you know, it's a it's ten thousand dollars a person, say so if you're a quarter Native American, you get twenty five hundred. I mean, how, you know, how would you do that? And then what about is it would it only be for Native Americans who are still on reservations, or would it be for all Native Americans? And what would the what's the appropriate amount? So I actually argue against reparations, and what the the proposal that I uh, think makes the most sense and is the most workable is to infuse Native American communities with developmental dollars and know-how and so it's you know like right now uh where the, the c- country uh is going through this big debate about infrastructure development for the country well what i think native american communities need is to have infrastructure development to the point where their communities are brought up to the standard of most american c- cities and towns which when you talk about you know, some of these communities they don't have water. You're right. I mean, a lot of these communities don't have any of the basic infrastructure. And now, if if a particular Native American family or a whole community doesn't want that, you know, fine. If they would want to try to maintain a traditional lifestyle where they're uh, living a nomadic sort of existence, living off the land and that's their choice, you know, fine. But the vast majority of Native Americans and reservations are living in poverty-stricken ghettos. Um, and it, it's just, you know, people would be shocked if, if they aren't familiar with it, if they visit some of these uh, communities. I mean, Wounded Knee, anybody that would go to Wounded Knee would just be amazed i mean there's almost no employment there there's almost no working infrastructure there and the whole um you know pine Ridge reservation where wounded knee is is like you get to the line of where that reservation starts the road isn't paved you go right up to the reservation (laughs) the road is paved uh, and that's you know that's just that's how the the difference in treatment has been
0: now now the uh, reservations themselves um and help me here because i i'm I'm not sure if I've got this right or not, that they are considered to be sovereign nations um and that that they're that the land is not United States land, but it is their land. Is that right?
1: Uh it's in a twilight zone. It's, it's really, yeah, it's a legal twilight zone because on the one hand, they uh, the, the the tribe or nation that who who has this reservation has certain uh legal authority within that land, but the federal government has oversight authority. Um and so for example. Um, federal courts have authority over native courts, and a, a, a person charged with a crime within uh, reservation land, or even now because of a recent US Supreme Court case, land that was supposed to be reservation land, but that got stolen that the reservation was not actually set up, um, has the right to take their uh, a criminal case to federal court as opposed to state court or as opposed to tribal court.
0: So it, it sounds like a very complicated, convoluted system that isn't working for anybody.
1: Yeah, it, 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 it's a, it is a convoluted system. Um, you know, the people that are, are living within it, they know it, they understand it. I mean, you know, that's what they've lived with. Uh, it, it looks weird from the outside because it's not like any—it's not like any state, any town, any city within the wider United States. I mean, there's—you know—there's one legal system. I mean, you've got your local courts and your state-level courts and your federal courts, and we all know how that works. Um, but there, it's there's this whole other—you know—this tribal governance which for most sort of daily functions that um, people living on the res are, you know, in their daily sort of normative life, it's tribal governance that they would be most concerned about. But then there are all these other issues which the federal courts and the U.S. Congress supersede.
0: Now, with the treaties that... Well, first of all, I I I don't know how many treaties are actually still in force or that haven't been broken because we tended to sign a treaty. And then it was when it became no longer in our best interest to uh, continue that treaty, we would trash it and then we would sign it. You know, and so how many treaties are there that are still in force? And probably none, I, I would guess. How many? you have the idea?
1: Well, uh, it's really a, an
0: interesting question
1: that. Um, a recent Supreme Court case, I mean, it just came out a year or two ago. Uh, I think that it, I described it in my book and uh, the name of the case I think is um, uh, Carpenter versus Murray Murphy. And what happened in this case is, um, a, uh, I believe he was Cherokee, um, was charged with a crime in eastern Oklahoma, not on a reservation, just in eastern Oklahoma, prosecuted in state court. Um, He appealed, went all the way up to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court said, well, the US made a treaty with the Cherokee to give them a reservation in eastern Oklahoma. Treaty was broken, there was never, the reservation that was promised was never set up, at least according to the bounds that the original treaty uh, had stated. So this guy, even though he was not within the reservation, was charged by uh, Oklahoma police, prosecuted in Oklahoma State Court, first said, no, he has a right to take his case to federal court. His conviction is thrown out. So the implication of that is that the u.s supreme court is saying all these treaties that were broken or were not fulfilled have legal effect now of course some you know some uh, native people are going to say okay so we get the eastern half of oklahoma that's what we were supposed to get that's not going to (laughs) happen uh the the u.s supreme court in 1980 uh, in a case brought by the Sioux Nation ruled that the Black Hills had been illegally taken, that they, the court recognized the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty was violated by the U.S. government. So what did the court do? It said, we're not giving you back the Black Hills. Sorry, ain't going to happen. We're going to give you money. And they awarded, um, you know, milk millions of dollars back then it's now worth um one and a half billion dollars that putt of money is sitting there unclaimed because the sioux nation refuses to give up on its claim to the land um i personally think that's a mistake on the one hand i completely understand it you know on a heart level i totally understand it and and if i was sue you know maybe i would take that same position but from a head level there's a whole bunch of money right there that you could use to help uplift your communities in so many ways and you're not i mean it's just not conceivable to me at least that the u.s government is ever going to give the black hills back just like you know the Cherokee are not going to get Tulsa Oklahoma (laughs) I mean you talk about a revolution by white people that's you know it's it's just not going to happen I mean you could from a strict legal standpoint you'd think well it should I mean that's what the agreement was if it was broken and we're we're finding you know just based on basic contract law a contract is breached uh if you can force the side that breached the contract to fulfill it that's called specific performance then the courts can do that on the other hand traditional legal principle is if you cannot enforce specific performance what do you get you get money damages and that's what the court has said we're just it's just not practical to try to give you the land back now you know, hundred eighty, a hundred years later, but we will give you money.
0: So so the, there's a billion dollars sitting in a bank somewhere at this that the Sioux could use to upgrade their schools, to build roads, to get put their people to work. Because I also understand that one of the the Native Americans are one of the groups that's that's that has got a lot of Uh, drug addiction and alcoholism and all that kind of stuff because they have no hope these people need hope and uh and that money would go a long way so i agree with you it would be nice it would be it would be advantageous for them because you're right they're never (laughs) it's like they're never going to get a sizable chunk of this country back so that they could go to a nomadic lifestyle again um that's not going to happen
1: yeah and i mean if you think about it um the year before columbus came native americans controlled 100% of the land uh now uh reservations uh they control um something like 2% so it's gone they've lost 98% of it yeah you know the, i mean where where do you start to say what what you should get back um so you know it's it isn't Going to happen. Um, and, the, you know, development is the way to go. I mean, it's education. You improve the schools. Uh, you improve basic infrastructure. You um, do economic development to create, to uh, help businesses get off the ground. Uh, and there's a, and I, I cite a number of examples uh, in the book about how this is done, how it's worked in particular cases um i started a foundation over in nepal which is called the basa village foundation and it's working with people who are very similar to our native americans i mean this this village when i first went there uh in 2008 there's no no running water no electricity um a school that went up to third grade Uh, no radio, no TV, I mean, no, nothing of what we think of as infrastructure. It was subsistence farming. Uh, Now they have uh, running water, they have electricity, they have cellular telephone, they have computers in the school. Um, In a very short time, working with the local community and with people who were trekkers and climbers who've been to the Nepal Himalayas, um, we, you know, in partnership with the community have developed this community. There's a medical clinic. I mean, it now has all of the basic infrastructure. And so the one delicate issue in doing that kind of uh, development is still respecting the local culture letting the local people decide you know to what extent do they want development and for the local people to decide the direction of the development and for the local people to be ultimately in control of it and not be owned run by outsiders but have the community in charge of it and so that's how we that's what we've done over in nepal it could be done here. It just takes money and the, um, the willingness and the the uh, insightfulness for how to do it right.
0: Exactly. Yeah. In in Washington State, the one uh, thing that they're using now it's not all the tribes but some of the tribes are are into casinos because it's federally it's federal land the state has nothing to do with it so they can do set up things differently and play different games and that's kind of a uh, the running joke is that we uh um we put them on reservations and now they're taking all our money because we're going to the casinos um but uh is that an idea that is workable in any way shape or form for i i understand if you're in the desert in southwest uh, 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 arizona and and there's no running water there's no way you could put up a casino there but in in some cases does that help but you you know what it doesn't do is it doesn't seem to help all of them because the housing is still not being updated the uh, you know what i mean the, they, they could do better at, at helping themselves or helping their fellow indians
1: yeah. yeah, it's definitely one piece of it. Um, economic development in terms of an, an actual business enterprise that can be successful, and casinos have been very successful for um, some tribes. Um, but it, it it won't be successful for all tribes and all reservations. I mean, there are some, uh, you know, some reservations where there aren't any tourists. I mean, the only people that are going to gamble there are the local indians who already have you know problems with drug and alcohol addiction and so now you're going to add gambling addiction to that you know not you know not a great solution No. Um, but yeah uh, there's a, a number of tribes that have done very well with casinos and have made a lot of money and ha- and have distributed that money wisely and fairly others it's just one more way that you know a small group of people have made money off sort of you know the brand of it's an indian casino uh without really having that money spread throughout and benefit the whole community
0: i you know i'm uh, familiar with the muckleshoot tribe uh they have got a they've got a huge huge um operation there for for a casino and they and they've done very well but what what i think where the mistake that they've made is that they give everybody that is a actual muckleshoot um, a member and can prove it a stipend on a monthly basis and which doesn't help those people get up go to work do the things that they should do go to school um that's that sort of thing that they they've got the money they can i think use it a little bit better maybe I don't know.
1: well you know it's a i find it really interesting to compare um native american communities that i have some familiarity with with the communities in nepal that i have a have developed a fairly deep familiarity with um because of my foundation work over there and one of the fundamental differences because on the surface they they look very similar in so many ways and even you know their sort of their their religious practices and their um philosophies are even are very similar but a big difference is the the ethnic tribal groups in Nepal were never defeated by a uh, you know a, a colonial army uh an invading army and the native americans are a defeated people and the level of depression um and just mental uh you know mental illness uh is is rampant you know just like the addiction problem is is rampant and it isn't in these uh the, the tribal ethnic groups in nepal they're very proud happy people i mean when people go with me and go trekking with me and visit Basa village. Every single person that does that says that these are the happiest people I've ever known. And they are, there's just this wonderful, delightful, happy attitude they have, even though by our standards, they're dirt poor farmers. Um, whereas native Americans, and I describe in the book about my own experience of visiting wounded Knee. And how the, the people were just you know not happy I mean just this feeling of, of depressed not and not everybody by any means I mean I, I talk about some kids that I ran into who were just delightful kids uh, on Pine Ridge Reservation but um, there's something about you know when you're when you're a defeated people it's hard to to pick yourself back up and they've and you know that sense of defeat goes from one generation to another unless there's some sense of victory some sense of okay you know we lost this war but now we're picking ourselves up we're getting uh, economically developed our kids are going to school you know life is good and it just for so many native communities life hasn't been good
0: no and, and I know that you spent a lot of time in your book talking about a potential solution. I'm not going to go into that here because I want people to buy your book and <laughs> uh, and that would be that would be good. by the way, we've been talking with Jeff Racely. Rasley Rasley. Racely. Ra I was right the first time. okay, you
1: got yeah, you were you right and then you backtracked.
0: Then I screwed up. Uh, <laughs> all right that's uh, yeah, Jeff Racely, and uh, he's written eleven books, and they're all socially relevant. He has traveled the world, uh, climbed mountains. Um, he has trekked all over the place. I don't know when you have had time to write 11 books because <laughs> your life, your life is very full. Are you, are you still out and about doing all these things or are you calming down in your midlife?
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think I may, maybe past midlife and into old age now, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, pandemic uh, kind of squelched uh, going back to Nepal anytime soon. Um, so, and unfortunately in Nepal, the, the virus is still rampant and it's uh, one of the countries that, that were advised not to go. Uh, a, a, a group of trekkers, um, which I helped to organize, did recently go there and had a wonderful time uh, but they were mostly from South Africa. Uh, well, in fact, they were all from South Africa, um, led by an expat college mate of mine. Um, but so uh, our Ameri- none of our American groups have been able to go back yet. We had the BASA Foundation, um, one of our uh, uh, directors, uh, she's organized a trek. It was gonna go last year got cancelled it was gonna go this fall cancelled so uh we're hoping she can take her group over in the spring um but uh yeah so i i've done some traveling during the pandemic in fact i I wrote an article about uh taking a road trip a cross-country road trip when the pandemic first broke out because we started off from indianapolis to drive to L.A. uh, and hit a bunch of national parks on the way, uh, thinking when we first started uh, in uh, March uh, of the pandemic year that, oh, it's just going to be restricted to Seattle and Washington State, and by the time we got to Moab, Utah, it had spread all the way across the country, and the shutdown started, so that was an interesting time to be on the road.
0: Oh, I can imagine that 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 would be tough. That would be very tough. That'd be very tough. So, um, can you give us a peek under the blanket of what the next book's going to be about?
1: <laughs> well, the next book is a different a a different uh, book, very much different from the last one, which you know addressed a very serious issue. that I think is important. This book, the um, working title is a pickleball soap opera. Love, murder, and pickleball. (laughs) I've been playing a lot of pickleball during (laughs) during the pandemic lockdown. That's been my great escape. And so, you know, as uh, Mark Twain said, write what you know. And so I've gotten to know pickleball. So I've created a a murder romance mystery uh, based on a group of pickleball players. (laughs)
0: <laughs> sounds like sounds like a fun time. Well, when, when you finish that one, you'll have to come back. But we've but uh, um, we've been talking about your book, which is the let's see. I, I I just let's see. It is America's existential crisis. It's a it involves the uh, Native American population and what and um, how we got into this mess and how uh jeff is going to help us get out of this mess there it is there that's it right there uh, when did it, when did it come out by the way
1: uh it came out in
0: may how's it doing so far well i think it should sell more than it has i think every author i've ever met has said the exact same <laughs> thing
1: is jk rowling even satisfied with her sales <laughs> no you can there can be
0: one more reader absolutely that's that's good well i wish you much much success sir and i and i really it it is a topic that is under discussed under reported on and is kind of kind of our dirty little secret that there are places in our country that are so fun and i keep reminding myself this is the united states of america and we've got places that are dirt poor that are not being well taken care of and we shouldn't allow that that shouldn't be allowed in this country maybe we'll buy a few less missiles that'd be good (laughs) yeah uh
1: that would be good well kevin thanks a lot for having me it's been really delightful talking to you all
0: right and enjoyed every minute of it and and uh um and thank you for doing what you're doing it's it's important work and and uh And I just appreciate it. Is there anything you'd like to tell our audience before we go?
1: Well, I I guess, you know, just sticking with the the theme of our talk uh, is I I hope um, Americans, you know, all Americans, including uh, Native Americans, will just um, become more familiar with the real history and not just the Hollywood version of history of the injustices that have been visited on uh, native tribes and not just be depressed about it, feel bad about it or feel guilty about it, but let's, you know, look at it, what it is and let's do something about it. And, you know, there are solutions where these communities can be uplifted. I've been a part of doing that and I know it can be done.
0: And it should be done. We, and it we should be
1: done.
0: We have a responsibility. Not, not, okay, we don't. We weren't here, but our our ancestors and the people that came before us were here, and so we need to clean up after them. And we should. Uh, that's the right thing to do. So, I hope th- I hope that they'll take your advice and we and we do that.
1: Well, I do too, and you know it's. Some people uh, want to sort of wallow in guilt. That doesn't do any good, you know. No. I, I don't feel I don't feel guilty about the fact that my actual ancestor was a participant in the Wounded Knee massacre. I mean, I didn't do it; I wasn't there. But I recognize that a terrible wrong was done, and because I recognize that, I'd like to help be part of the solution to you know, correct that injustice.
0: Well said. So. Jeff Racely has been our guest. I got it right. So thank thank you. Uh, go to Amazon. He's got 11 books there. There's some great titles. Next time you're here, we'll run them down and we'll talk a little bit about each one of them uh, because it would be fun. It'd be fun because you you are very well read and, you, and you're a very good writer. So it would be fun to talk to you again. Uh,
1: I'd love to come back, Kevin. I'll look forward to it
0: yes indeed well you have sir i hope you're having a great thanksgiving weekend and uh you have a, yourself a wonderful afternoon and evening well it's he's he's close it's already uh evening time so it's time for you to go have dinner <laughs> you're gonna go have turkey i
1: will I have second day of turkey
0: <laughs> so as we
1: say in nepal namaste kevin
0: namaste to you sir have a great day and thank you so much i've got to play this and i'll be right back